This is Subversive, a podcast hosted by me, Alex Kashuta, to highlight hidden voices, uncommon perspectives, and our era's true intellectual elite, the anonymous poster. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. Thank you and enjoy. Today, I am joined by Jean-François Garriepi. Uh, he is a biologist, an author, and uh, the host of JFG Tonight, and the author of The Revolutionary Phenotype, uh, a, a very recent book. Welcome, Jean-François. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, glad to have you on. Um, I mean, you're a very controversial figure in, in, in many directions. You know, just a, a cursory Google search will reveal all sorts of, of terrible attributes that you're linked to. Uh, but today I want to talk to you in your uh, capacity as author and biologist and as someone who um, might shed a bit of light on a lot of technological developments that I think a lot of people on the right and even on the more fringy dissident right don't really know how to parse, don't really know how to understand and don't really know, you know, it's to take as, um, you know, maybe utopian technologies that will, you know, solve the fertility crisis or, um, you know, something that is is relevant in our, in our uh, civilizational conflict with China. There's, there's all sorts of angles on this, but yeah, you've, you've written on this um, and especially about the implications of CRISPR. So, I mean, there's many, many places to start, but what's, what's kind of the, the, the core thesis of your book and, and what are, are the implications of, of these the revolutionary uh, phenotype? So the core thesis of my book is that life forms pass through stages and that they evolve normally. And normal evolution had been pretty well documented by biologists. That's how you get from a bacteria to an elephant, basically, a set of reinforcement through reinforcements through natural selection that apply to features that help the organism live. And they lead to organisms that are increasingly functional and increasingly complex most of the time, a lot of the time, not always. Uh, but regular evolution was pretty known. Uh, but what, what the, the theory of phenotypic revolutions address is those special moments in evolution where things revert, where things don't go the normal way, they go in an opposite direction, where there is a kind of, uh, I don't know if we could call it de-evolution, but from the perspective of, of the life form that initiates those events, it's definitely a, an act of de-evolution. It's a reversal of the normal set of pressures that lead to an organism to become complex and stable. Uh, phenotypic revolutions are extremely unstable events where the genes get changed. And uh, my claim is that if we start engaging in CRISPR, we are going to start a phenotypic revolution. And that the last time such an event happened is about 4 billion years ago. And when you engage in a phenotypic revolution, the outcome of it is a destruction of your genes as a replicator and their conversion into a tool into a phenotype that is into a part of your body and the genes eventually become something else. I say, if we start playing with CRISPR, we're going to let some artificial intelligence decide for us. And de facto, the replicator will not be our DNA anymore. It will be some artificial intelligence, some uh, set of signals in a computer and some hard drive determining what humanity looks like. And by doing so, we will abandon all of the pressures that lead us to that led us in the first place 
to become human. Mm. Yeah, there's there's kind of um, a school of thought uh, on the kind of uh, more fringy right that this is essentially just another step in in human evolution that you know you have kind of the um the kind of the external brain the logic of the machine taking over and continuing and you you know some people just say you kind of have to relax into it because it's inevitable you know kind of the accelerationist view that uh, this is you know just just the next the next thing that's going to take us over i mean why um shouldn't we um, celebrate this? Why is this not natural? I mean, what's, what is the mechanism here that is going to um, you know, destroy us as, as, as we know ourselves? So it's not inevitable in the sense that we can choose the evolutionary direction that we take. We chose at some point to start putting roofs over our heads, and this has led to a certain evolution. We don't have as much hair as the other primates, because we live covered in clothes and covered with roofs and uh, walls. We decided this, and we could have taken another direction, and we still would have as much hair as a, as a chimpanzee. So we can change evolutionary directions according to what we desire. Now the question de- becomes, should we desire to be in a phyto- phenotypic revolution? The mechanism, I, I believe, is an undesirable one. Uh, because of what it means for everything that exists and that is currently human. Now, you could say, okay, the life form that will develop from a phenotypic revolution, this kind of computer-human hybrid society, uh, that for that life form, everything would be fine. It would live, it would go on, it would compete. But for us, it wouldn't be fine. And I think there is a moral, deontological issue with taking something that is free, something that is competitive and creative like humanity currently is, and shunting it down, turning off its emotional triggers, turning off its capacity for sexual selection, turning off its motivation and its desire for grandeur and for, for an ego and for, for just realizing things in the world. The reason we want to realize things in the, wor- <clears throat> in the world is basically that we have uh, we have a desire to conquer the world to please the other sex, uh, both in the, in the sense of males and females in, in their own ways. Uh, if we engage in a phenotypic revolution, we will lose all of it and everything that's attached to sexual selection. Because in a phenotypic revolution, some kind of central entity starts determining what your genes will be. And as such, you are not subject to the normal Darwinian processes that lead to that led us to acquire basically everything that we have that's different from bacteria. Uh, if we hadn't had sexual selection, we wouldn't have mushrooms, plants, and all animals. So when you think about the features that we will abandon when we abandon sexual selection, we're talking about the entirety of our cognitive capacity, our emotions, and everything that makes us uh, creatures with will. Because in a phenotypic revolution, the, the entity that gets eventually farmed by a central entity or central AI becomes submitted, subordinated progressively through thousands of years by the central entity. Because the central entity is the one uh, according to which natural selection goes on. And so I don't think that mo- if humans were to understand the consequences of a phenotypic revolution, I don't think they would choose it willfully. 
We're talking about the destruction of human civilization as it stands and its replacement with a class of kind of slaves uh, that will eventually be selected as slaves to, to the AI because it's inevitable through evolution that you become a slave to whatever central entity feeds your genes. Uh, the way I will, uh, the way I compare it is we are about to turn humanity in the same way through the same process that happened to bees and ants when they started trusting queens, central queens, uh, that will determine the entire genetic composition of a colony. Once you do this, uh, you are not an individual ant or an individual queen anymore. You are a, a, an individual, uh, bee anymore. You are trusting your queen to determine the passage to the next generation. And when you look at what happened to bees and, and ants, they were turned into sterile workers. There is only one entity that reproduces. It's the queen. And the rest of the colony is enslaved to the interest of the queen. Now, what will happen to humanity is that our queen will be some computer, some network of scientists that will determine what we become. And the, these scientists and these computers, whatever they are and whatever form they take, they will not have our best interest at art. And we will no more evolve to become, to become better versions of ourselves. We will evolve to become better tools for this thing that will take over us. Yes. I mean, this, this kind of uh, describes an end state, but I, I feel like um, some of the ingredients are already there, even before CRISPR, even before. I mean, the idea of being um, guided away from sexual selection by a central memeplex and, uh, you know, this essentially choosing sterility because of, of of an idea or of many ideas that you've been implanted with throughout your life. And, um, you know, the depolarization of the sexes, this has been in the works for, for a very long time. I mean, you know, sex is not very sexy anymore. And a lot of people don't really know how to put their finger on why this is the case, you know, uh, overstimulation with, with everything all the time. I mean, this, there's a lot of things that flow into this. So could we say that maybe the, the phenotypic revolution is a, is kind of, already rolling and CRISPR is just kind of the, the, the crowning achievement of this thing that's going in that direction. Absolutely. We should keep in mind that CRISPR is the point of no return. When we start doing it, we get rewarded evolutionarily and we can't go back. Uh, but definitely you can look basically at the last 200 years of human history and interpret it as the first step within the phenotypic revolution. And what's so scary about humanity is how eager they seem and how just perfect they seem to be manipulated into a phenotypic revolution. Uh, first, the, the first step of a phenotypic revolution is understanding that you have genes. And we've done that for the last 200 years. We've been digging into the details, understanding evolution through Charles Darwin, looking at ourselves, finding what are the genes inside of us. Turns out it's DNA. So all of this sets the stage for the first step, which is you need to understand that you have genes. You need to understand that they're competing according to regular evolution. The only step that we're missing really is you need to be tempted to play with them. You need to be tempted to change them. And that's what we're, we're currently doing. Uh, we may have done it already in China. Uh, a, a, a scientist who went on his own and decided to do it without permission on uh, two young girls because he wanted to provide them 
protection against HIV infection from their father. Whether that's true or not, and whether he accomplished it, and whether that will work, is not so important. What's important is there's too much temptation, and there's too little knowledge. There's too too few people who understand the full consequences of a phenotypic revolution and who are in position to say, we don't want to apply those evolutionary forces onto humanity. Uh, I don't think, uh, I think that there's basically no one except myself who fully realized everything that we will lose. And it, it is pretty much anything that you could like as human beings, anything that you could define as human will go away and we will be turned into tools for something else. Yeah, I think one of the um, the major arguments for continuing research in the CRISPR direction is exactly this, you know, that there are dark forces in, in the second and third world and other kind of imperial states that are already doing this. And if we don't do it, they'll do it. And then they'll, you know, have, I don't know, seven foot super soldiers and just decimate everything. And, you know, this is obviously the, the extreme jokey version. But um, I mean, if if this these wheels are put in motion, um, what what type of um, implementation of force at what level would would it require to to stop research in or I don't know exactly maybe not stop stopping research is not the solution but to essentially say okay we outlaw CRISPR on a global 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 level. Well, I think that there are different scenarios. Uh, one scenario is coexistence in separate areas. So if a continent decides to go CRISPR another decides not to. There could be mutual respect that would maintain a DNA-based life existence. But as we've seen in our own civilization and through the the very sets of competitive forces that exist between nations, uh, eventually populations that overpopulate a place of the globe end up dripping out of it and populating the other places. So it might be very hard because once, even if you were to keep two separate places where DNA-based existence and CRISPR-based existence can go on, eventually the people would be respected for having rights in both places. Citizens could immigrate and they could seed uh, new types of revolutionary phenotypes in, in whatever area they haven't gone yet. So I'm worried that coexistence is basically impossible. I'm also worried that uh, th- this competition argument that you mentioned, this kind of arms race of if we don't do it first, someone else will do it. Uh, arms race arguments are irrational, and, and humanity may very well pursue the, the arguments that you, you've mentioned there. But it would be irrational to do so. And what I hope is that we can convince people that an arms race is invalid if it leads to mutual self-destruction that if you are talking about a game like the chicken game where two people will collide together and potentially kill each other, uh, you have no interest in playing that game. It's a bad game to engage with. It's irrational to want to play that game unless you think you can get away with it. Uh, What I say is with the phenotypic revolution, none of the people alive today will leave biological descent. So we all have a common genetic interest in not doing it. And what we need is to tell the population and convince the people that it's not just about me. It's not about you, Alex. It's not about this politician or that politician or this nation or that nation. Everyone 
will be threatened by a revolutionary phenotype. And whatever it is that you think you are leaving as descent will eventually be turned into something else by this computer. So you might as well argue that when you let a computer mess with your genes and the genes of your children, because that, that's where the computer will come in. They, they will not change your genes as you are alive. They will simply change your genes as you reproduce. When you do that, uh, your baby is not your baby. Uh, and it's not part of your line of descent. That baby is a product of the computer and it will eventually serve the interest of the computer in its actions and its evolution. Yes, I mean, is there a a chance that um, you know, because this is kind of the case with with AI um, conversations around AI safety and everything, um, you know, they they all they always say, okay, AI is is very close. It's in it's you know, it's twenty years in the future always, and you know, AGI is going to come, and you know, the singularity is going to wipe us out, and all this. Is there a chance that CRISPR could be a, a disaster technology that it doesn't actually deliver on the, the promises that it, you know, it, it wouldn't lead to that problem because we can't actually deliver on its promise. I don't know much about CRISPR. Sounds extremely uh, utopian to me in, in the way it's presented. So uh, I guess you from a more technical standpoint, I mean, would it actually be able to do this? CRISPR could have a lot of failures along the way and I, I'd love it to happen so that we we kind of have more time to prepare the minds of humans to the idea that we should just not engage in it. Uh, but my fear is that no matter what the obstacles will be, uh, there will be solutions to them. Uh, there may be an unintentional genetic modifications, but eventually these unintentional modi genetic modifications will turn to our advantage. Because even if uh, if... I don't know, 99% of the people on the first batch of humans affected by this technology. 99% could die. But what about the 1% left? <clears throat> they, will be, they, they will have evolved basically a resistance to whatever defects the, the original technology had. And so they will have been selected through random events to have better genes to handle the interaction with CRISPR. So whatever are the offsets and the, the obstacles, I'm afraid that we have to take a conscious decision and that it's the only solution because all of these obstacles will be surmounted at some point. Now, you were mentioning uh, AI singularity, and I find that the discussion in this domain is uh, so <clears throat> such low level. I, I don't believe one moment. I don't believe that the people engaging around intelligence uh, properly understands it. Uh, they, they talk about intelligence being the threat to humanity, when in fact, intelligence isn't a threat. It, it, intelligence is a tool, and it's a tool as much for computers as it is for ourselves. It's a tool that can pay off sometimes, and sometimes it may not pay off. Uh, in our current society, intelligence is not necessary to survive. And that's why uh, people of high levels of intelligence, like 140 IQ, are extremely rare. Uh, it's simply because there is no evolutionary pressure to drive the population to be generally intelligent. Uh, the same will apply to AI. No matter what, what level of intelligence we're talking about, uh, this intelligence will be a tool. It may be used by some people, it may not be used by others, and they will 
they will be rewarded or, or not rewarded for their use of it. There is one danger with artificial intelligence beyond the problem of phenotypic revolutions. Uh, it's the problem that it replaces our intelligence. It makes our intelligence obsolete and useless. And as such, it creates an evolutionary pressure that may make us even more stupid. So we we have to be conscious of this. But to me, general, intellig- general artificial intelligence is not a civilizational threat. At worst, it will be something that will be used by certain humans to dominate over others. But that's always been the case. It's still human-to-human competition when an AI just helps one side rather than another. Uh, The phenotypic revolution is radically different, and I'm so sad when I see these discussions, but they don't mention this alternative scenario that the phenotypic revolution is, because in that scenario, we have a true civilizational threat. We have something that will abolish everything that we are, no matter who we are and where we are on planet Earth. Yeah, it, it is interesting to me that I, I think one of them, the, the bigger pushbacks against these types of technologies, embryo selection, comes in a way from from a faction of the left because it's considered eugenics. I mean, do you think the, the, the wider eugenics debate would have some importance here? I mean, you know, it, it is something that's important to the left. The left is in power. Um, is it something that might put a damper on this type of technology or do you think it's it's negligible? I believe that the current left takes issue with eugenics. My big fear is that once the technology is extremely available and at low cost enough for it to be done on everyone, that there will be a reversal of the left's position on this and of the normie and normocentric position on genetic modification. In fact, I believe that once CRISPR is established as a solid mean mean to improve people, the left will see it as an occasion to create an equalitarian utopia that uh, that that will basically be a leftist one that will be that that will rove around the themes of leftism such as authoritarianism, uh, faith to a central entity, and public education as the kind of foundations to this new sort of eugenics. My fear is that they take issue with eugenics up to now. Because eugenics is associated with meritocracy and absence of fairness. That that is the eugenics we've known for uh, centuries. But the eugenics of the future are going to make their way into society by arguing that we can fix the unjust system of meritocracy and that we don't need a meritocracy anymore. In fact, we can make everyone just perfect. That is the fear uh, because... The leftists are so numerous that they will, and the normies, they will determine uh, what way humanity is headed. And if they are tempted by this argument, in the same way, I would argue that uh, corporations have been tempted through wokeness uh, in the last decade. And that, that's a bizarre, uh, bizarre bed partner to have capitalism uh, in bed with wokeness. But the same thing could happen between eugenics and wokeness once eugenics is demonstrated to be a tool to achieve equality rather than create more of it. Yes, I think people would would wise up on HBD very quickly if CRISPR was was uh, was available uh, to to everyone. 
Yeah, it would become instantly common knowledge. No one would be adding any more tables and any more Excel sheets. Yeah, it's instantly uh, a big part of the left. We've always known this is true, but now we have the the power to change it. Um, yeah, um, I mean, there's there are quite a lot of um, of technologies in this realm as well. I mean, uh, you have genetic testing uh, for disease. I don't know. Is, is that something you think is risky as well? Or is that, you know, beneath the, the threshold of, of something you'd consider, uh, you know, dangerous? I think we can test. Uh, the problem is by testing, we're also creating a situation where we are more and more tempted. The more you test, the more you know, and the more you know, the, the more you want to intervene. So as long as we're extremely rational about it, we could uh, know everything about the human genome and yet have a moral principle that says, we're not going to touch it. We're going to leave it as such. Uh, the big problem is uh, w- when, when these uh, ethics committees start saying, oh, well, we have evaluated the technology and th- there is uncertainty about it, but we may prove that it's safe in a couple of years. Th- that's what I read from basically the, the philosophers and the, the bioethicists that think about these questions. They take no account at all of the long-term evolutionary consequences of their action. They're just interested at, is the baby going to breathe okay? And uh, did we improve his life? Uh, That is such an individual framing. We have to get out of it. And we have to understand that once you let doctors play with uh, the the course of evolution, uh, you mess up a, a process that we need to maintain ourselves as we are. Yes, I think there's a, an, an argument that I heard about the fact that, you know, we have extremely low child mortality now, which, you know, has been a blessing to many parents. And, you know, at, at an individual level, it's it's a miracle. But on the collective level, there are consequences for this uh, because these are essentially children who wouldn't necessarily have been viable. I mean, all of all of IVF is essentially brute force implementation of, of embryos that wouldn't have been viable and just, you know, uh, trying to, to create life where, where there, there shouldn't, but there naturally shouldn't be any, um, obviously a miracle on the individual level, but at the same time could have, uh, consequences down the line. I mean, do you think these technologies, I mean, these, these have been active for, for a very long time. Um, do you think this has, uh, an implication in, in the phenotypic revolution? Well, they they have evolutionary implications because they create more variability. They let uh, people exist who wouldn't have existed. So we have to be conscious of this. And they may be uh, ultimately creating the staging, staging the, the scene for the phenotypic revolution to happen because eventually there will be so much variability and so much weakness in what we carry into the future that there's going to be people who are systematically in the need of a help from the doctor to survive or a help from the doctor to reproduce. That's what IVF does. It increases the number of people in the population who will, who will in the future, need further IVF to make more babies. Uh, so what do we do with this? Well, uh, we have to start managing society by caring for the evolutionary forces that we're messing with. And that, that is something that the left hates doing. But we have to be aware that it's not necessarily by saving someone directly that we're resolving the problem. We may have resolved the problem for that individual, but that individual will have babies. These babies will have the genes of the individual 
of the initial person who was in problem and who needed whatever help, whether that's humanitarian help or medical help of some kind. And so we're, we are creating, for, for every problem that we solve, we're creating a host of equivalent problems in the next generation. This has to stop. And if we don't stop this, we will create an even more ardent argument for the, the phenotypic revolution, where people will say, all right, we have created such dependent populations on this planet that we need, we need genetic editing to fix them up. And this will make the problem worse. Uh, the solution is a kind of view, a, a anarcho-primitivist view of society where we accept that we are a life form and that w the responsibility that comes with a life form is to care that evolution will always happen unto us and try to direct it in a decent direction rather than direct it in, in a direction of dependence and lack of self-sustainability. But the, the leftists are clearly not ready to engage on this conversation. Yeah, I mean, the, the perspective you lay out there is, is deeply responsible, but I feel like at, at a level of, of abstraction that people can't, can't grasp. I mean, this, this seems completely foreign of a way of, of thinking for, obviously, pretty much everyone on the left, and I would say 90% of people on the so-called right as well, um, because, uh, you know, the, the individual perspective know, the survival of one individual. This is kind of the, the core of pretty much modern theology is, is how it is. You know, the preferences of the individual, the survival, you know, COVID. If COVID taught us one thing, it is that the most sacred core thing is this abstraction of the survival of every individual. There's bare life, you know, it needs to survive. The death count. Exactly. The death it's count. amazing how people talk in harm, death count, saving suffering. But they don't think about if you save suffering now, how many, how much suffering have you caused in 50 years from now when, when the next generation shows up? But I would like them to think in that way. Of course, we don't evolve to think in that way. That's a very mathematical and academic approach. But I think that we should see it like engineers. Uh, engineers have not evolved to be engineers. They, they think of problems. Uh, in terms of the structure, the causes, the mechanism, and they reach a conclusion. We need engineers of evolution. Rather than blind ourselves and, and go with, uh, with these blindfolds that cut us from reality, we need to understand that evolution will happen whether you like it or not. And it's much better to care about it than to ignore it. Yeah, I mean, you have this... Um this view, this vision of evolution as the driving force, and it's something that we we shouldn't unshackle ourselves. It is it is an abstract view. It's kind of an engineering view, and it's it's I think a hard one to communicate to people. Most people don't see you know submitting to evolution as one of the core things. But I feel like the problem is that they don't see any other meta narrative that ties them to the next generation as a core thing of their life anymore. You know what what they see is the food. The, the you know whatever it is that is interesting in the moment and all influences around them tell them that this is the most interesting thing you know whatever status game they're involved in you know the, living for the day is very important having the experience is very important uh, what's going to happen with your children I mean who even wants children anymore they're ex they're exhausting why would one want children you can do something else more interesting with your experience of the world so I think that's to me it feels like that's a a, a very complicated it's it's very hard to convince people to care about their offspring when they it's not it's optional 
it's just another accessory yeah. that you you buy. And I'm asking them to care about their great, great, great grand offspring. So it's a tough thing, but I wouldn't say it's impossible simply because if you look at traditional thinking, uh, just at my grandfather and my great-grandfather, they had all of these ways of doing and these perceptions that they were continuing the world through their family. And so there is something of an instinct in humanity that's ready to welcome that idea. Somehow this idea has been put to the side through modernity and some of it may be uh, maybe a subversive, a subversive manipulation of society. I love this word, by the way. I love your, your podcast title. <laughs> I, I really you. think subversive is both what we are the victim of many times and anti-natalism and all of the attacks on the family. But it's also what we have to learn to do. We have to learn to be subversive to counter the subversiveness of the other side. But yeah, I think there's something natural in humanity capable of digesting a view that is intergenerational and a view of yourself as I'm just a part of a chain of being. And my grandfather may have thought himself of a chain of maybe three, four generations that he could think of. But now that we have biology, we have the, a much more deep view that we are actually part of a chain of sex that has been going on for at least uh, five mi 500 million years, if not a couple billion years. Yes, I think it's, um, it's, it's uh, a, a, hard, a hard thing to communicate to people. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it feels like the, the biggest burden of our, of our generation to, to, to bring back that. But I feel like, you know, obviously I know communities that are coming back from that. You know, they, they've been soaked in, in liquid modernity and they want it out. And now they have, you know, they're having children and they're committed to their families and all of that. So there is kind of a, a backlash effect. Um, and there is importance in ideology. I mean, you know, people say, you know, ideology is just a cloak for power and, you know, it's used by powerful people to um, it also can change lives. I feel like a lot of people, you know, start start off LARPing, you know, they, they watch whatever content, but if it ends up making changes in their lives where they just decide to, you know, procreate, you know, it's all good. <laughs> this is very useful ideology. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, how do you see that? Do you see any sort of uh, changes on the horizon in terms of, of how people view themselves or this has to be something that's done from from on high and it needs kind of forceful intervention or whatever, you know, the Amish are doing, it won't matter in whatever, 200 years. Oh, no, I think that uh, the Amish are a great model of society and I think we should inspire ourselves. I, I would like to, uh, I like to think of myself as a Amish with a computer and a fiber optics cable connecting me to the internet. Uh, I think that they, they provide a model of society that, that we should definitely inspire ourselves from. Now, uh, do I think that it has to come from the top down simply because our ancestors uh, basically had top down people inst instructing them to reproduce basically religion and the, the dominant ideologies of the time? But I don't think it has to come from top down. I think it's inevitable in the face of the game that we're playing, which is evolution, that the game is set for people who are natalist, people who care about making babies, they will survive and they will outcompete the others. 
it may seem dark uh, when you, you pass through modernity and we live in the times that we live because you see all of these anti-Natalist memes succeeding, but they can only succeed temporarily. That's the truth of evolution. Whoever keeps making babies under the constant bashing of anti-Natalist modernity will have developed an evolutionary resistance to any of these bad ideas and will, by definition, define what the next generation looks like. The next generations that are coming can only be more natalist uh, in face of the same stimuli. It is only because modernity came so fast that it surprised our genes in a way. And we have to live through the nightmare of seeing so many people fall for anti-natalism. But in the end, the game is set for us to systematically win. Yes, but the only major opponent is uh, the the phenotypic revolution, which can catch up to everyone. Yes, except the phenotypic revolution, because the phenotypic revolution is an alternative life form that doesn't tell you don't make babies. It just outcompete your babies. So that is the threat we have to think about. I'm not super worried about the threat of anti-natalism as a contagious meme uh, telling us not to reproduce, because that will be resolved by any ongoing evolutionary process that still goes on. Yes, I think that's um, that's true. I mean, like you said, it's, it is a bit uh, disheartening to see how many people, how many absolutely normal people fall for these memes. Um, you know, it's just a, a, a big part of my my black pilling and, and career on the internet is just talking to many of my, my you know, childhood friends and people like that who just hook, line, and sinker went for for everything that that came in and uh you know it's just a uh, very very stereotypical how how it ended up um and it's it's sad and you know it's I couldn't you can't really confront ladies uh directly about this stuff so I talked to, to strangers on the internet about it and maybe one day they'll they'll hear this podcast and know that I'm why can't them. you confront ladies is it harder to speak to ladies than men on this subject I th- I think so. I mean, maybe maybe I'm not good at it. I but also obviously the, the caveat is maybe my social skills are a little bit lacking or something, or I don't know how to put it nicely. But I do tend to uh, either be very blunt or not say anything. Uh, and I guess mm. in the moments when I'm very blunt, uh, you know, six months of silence ensues, and then I realize that I made a mistake. <laughs> so yeah, it's you know, but but this this stuff is like extremely important it is you know and it's it's the stuff of of religious conviction almost you know it's it's kind of like confronting my my protestant friend if i was you know a catholic in whatever ireland in the you know 1930s or something we're gonna yeah. have we're gonna have a lot of, of friction because um there's also a lot of cognitive dissonance with these, these decisions like for example if you're like a woman in your 30s and you've decided not to have children um that decision comes with a lot of thinking you've been thinking about this you know you've you've debated this internally with yourself and others um and there's a lot of good arguments to have children and for you to be to continue convincing yourself that this was the the right decision you just consume all the media that you can about it and which tells you obviously that you've made the right decision um but then you also don't want to confront yourself with any arguments to the contrary so you're very uh, irritable about <laughs> talking about it so yeah. Yeah, it's it's a. I, I don't a sad even fact. like the concept of arguments. I don't think that the the decision to reproduce for a life form should be channeled through the cognitive layers of the brain. I don't think that nature intended us to think about having babies. 
Nature yes. made everything so that we would have babies if we just needed some warmth one night and, and we hugged to someone else <laughs> and eventually the rest would go. <laughs> it should exactly. be as easy as this, but modernity has put so much obstacles in the way. Uh, it's, uh, it's what I call the, the modern big cock blocking. <laughs> the yeah. condoms, the birth pill, everything. But it's like you you were saying that, uh, you know, we found out about genes. I mean, maybe the, the, the bigger crossroad was when we found out about sex and how babies are made. You know, that was <laughs> very important. Like, we shouldn't have known. Just continue doing yeah. what you're doing and don't worry about that's it. A, that's an interesting thought. Uh, maybe the, the day we realized this, I don't know, maybe it was a couple of thousands of years ago, I guess. I mean, you can see religious texts in which they don't understand fully that there's a sperm and an egg, but they, they kind of know that the sperm has something to do with it. Uh, but yeah, maybe that day uh, was the wrong one. Yeah, there's a lot of forks in the road, but uh, but that's one of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I also want to ask you about synthetic wombs. I mean, this is also a big, uh, a big question on, on the right. A lot of people are, are pro, especially people who are worried about, you know, the extinction of certain races are very much pro synthetic wombs just because, okay, maybe this is, you know, a plug and play solution for our, our issue. And then we can just respawn from, uh, you know, a warehouse outside Seattle or something like that. Um, so I, I don't know, is this, is this even close to, to reality. I mean, you see all these rendered photos of, you know, synthetic wombs in one big warehouse and, you know, it, look, it looks all interesting on like a little internet video, but um, I don't know, is this, is this anywhere close to, to possible? It's relatively close. We've done it with animals. And so there will be lots of obstacles along the way to make it really safe and really desirable and, and no handicap resulting from it. But I think we could get there within the next 50 years, realistically. Uh, or we may not, and it may take a little more time if we're shy on the ethics side and on the, the questions relating to should we do it. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, I advocate for a resistance to technologies, but not all of them and not indiscriminately. I think that there's fascinating things like the internet. I have no issue with it. Uh, lots of the medicine, lots of the drugs, I take no, no issue with it. There, There is a problem of overdiagnosis in our society and we're giving them up too much. But in general, I think we should develop anything that fixes an ailment or a disorder. And I think that ultimately the liberty of people should be what determines if they take it or not. And it doesn't mean that everything will be good about these technologies, but at least as long as we're in a world where People are free to take them and they get the good effects if they're good. And they also go through the bad effects if they're bad. I'm fine because the, the punishment and the reward system is well aligned. The person who made the decision ends up paying the price or benefiting from it. Now, the question of uh, artificial embryo, uh, artificial uteruses, basically artificial wombs is uh, interesting I think we should be extremely cautious with this technology because it undermines uh, the monogamous marriage, nuclear family style of living. It allows a lot of reproduction that may go on in, in ways that haven't been traditionally uh, established as working. So what happens when five people decide to get a baby together in an artificial womb? That might become possible. Is it good for a child to have five parents? 
is it good for a child to have parents who identify as A, B, C and who normally wouldn't have had babies, but somehow through this technology can have them? We have to think about all these things. Now, jokingly, and I would say half jokingly, there is still one, uh, one thing that redeems the artificial womb. And I bring it up sometimes. It is that it is, it will be a leverage because currently what is the limiting factor in human reproduction is the female womb and the female desires. And this has come to frustrate a lot of men who, who gather in the incel community and who basically think every day about how, uh, how frustrating it is not to be chosen. And there may be men of value evolutionarily that are, that are getting rejected by women for the wrong reasons. And you would think that the artificial womb can leave an out for these men and can also give a leverage, uh, so that women cannot have this, this superpower, which is to choose the entirety of the, the, the future direction of humanity. Perhaps it is good that they have it. Perhaps it is bad sometimes. And perhaps it would be good for a man who is successful in many ways. For example, he may be a billionaire, but somehow he has social issues that lead him to not seem desirable to women. Perhaps the artificial womb would be a solution to remove a little bit of power to women and say, there's this option and you can have, in fact, 10,000 babies because you're a billionaire. So you can buy a lot of artificial wombs. Uh, will it be desirable for the babies? I don't know. Uh, there will be lots of questions and lots of things to resist also against. Uh, but um, in the current context where you have a big issue in society with female-initiated divorce, uh, an issue that leads to actual human suffering because of the legal system of family courts that deny parental rights to fathers. Having the artificial embryo solution to say, hey, if you cannot give us some kind of loyalty, if you cannot guarantee us some kind of stability through marriage, if you're telling me that the nuclear family is destroyed no matter what I do, then the artificial, uh, the artificial womb solution seems like an interesting one because the nuclear family being already destroyed by female decision-making uh, then we get an out, an out that doesn't include a female. Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen people make this argument. It strikes me as, as quite dystopian. I feel like it's very much, you know, throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, even literally in this case, um, <laughs> you know, seems a little bit extreme. I know, I know a, a lot of people who, as far as I understand, have been actually, you know, hurt in, in the courts end up making this argument and people who have a life story that, you know, matches exactly what you said. You know, this is the, the, there's unfairness, there's a lot of um, corruption in terms of, of the legal system and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, as a, as a woman myself, as a mother, as, you know, happily married, I'd say maybe hold off. <laughs> there, there, no, there, there are ways to I always to get this. this. <laughs> I get this opposition from quality females like you who are loyal and who don't have to face the landscape of female aggression in our current society. Uh, I think that I don't know if you as a, as a clearly beautiful and intelligent female who's loyal and who's happily marry, married, 
I don't think if you measure fully the state of the female pool of of breeding in current society, <laughs> it is horrible. I haven't it is, measured it, it myself. Is, uh, worse than war. <laughs> I I can I I I am sympathetic to this view. Um, I mean, like I said, I know this, and you know the the group of people that I you know I grew up in is is these are not bad people, but they've been convinced that, okay, this is, um, you know, individual, um, fulfillment is what they should be chasing. You know, their lifetime is the, the, the only ticket they have to maximize enjoyment and experiences and travel and whatever that is. Um, children are a burden because they are, it's really hard to have children compared to modern living where, you know, the food comes delivered by some dude and you have a email job and stuff like that. Not sleeping for, for six months is, is it's like trench warfare conditions compared to your day life. So, I mean, I understand, but, um, at the same time, I think they're misguided. Um, but at the same time, I also know that these are absolutely normal, decent women who, if there was a, um, change in 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 the water if there was a change in what is high status what is interesting and maybe a change that as always in history was prompted by a handful of important power hungry men that these women end yes. up looking up to you know things could change quite suddenly a preference cascade could could go in the other direction without people having to grow children in their in their shed okay so we, we need to do that. <laughs> I was I was just about to say yes, exactly. That's what we we need. We need power over these women, and we will achieve this power by using the artificial womb and showing them, hey, we can include you back into the reproductive cycle, but you're gonna have to be kind and smiling and loving. That's all I want. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I could imagine that, you know, some women might think, okay, they're going to start tacking on more and more conditions to this list. I don't know if I want to I want to participate, um, especially because a lot of, you know, the, the problem is that a lot of women and a lot of men as well. I mean, I know there are, you know, a lot of decent men who want children who can't have them as well. There are also a lot of decent women who have can't have children for many reasons. Um, and they would maybe, you know, go the artificial womb route. Um, but you know, the, the, the issue here is that, um, um, a lot of women just, just decide that it's not worth it. Like a lot, a lot of the, the lacking and, you know, life is comfortable for a lot of women. It really is. It's not that bad being, you know, a girl boss spinster, you know, it, it, we, people talk, you know, it's like the end of the world. There's a lot of depression and anxiety. There's medication for that. You know, it's not as bad as being like, I don't know, a, a diseased crone in some, you know, medieval village, maybe, you know, who's, you know, a spinster like 600 years ago, you know, life is better. You know, you get your foot massages, you have your email job, you go to whatever Costa Rica once every two years, Starbucks, you know, it's pumpkin spice (laughs) time. You know, there's a lot of distractions. It's really not bad. So even if, you know, men show up with their artificial wombs and a list of, you know, demands, they'll be like, yeah, whatever, man. (laughs) I, you know, my decision to, to be a feminist is, is, correct. So I think we we need to negotiate a truce that's not just throwing out an ultimatum. So that's why I'm not for the artificial wombs. I think it would destroy already tenuous gender relations. For this negotiation to even happen, we need something to dangle in front of women that they want. And uh, men have been deprived of the thing that they used to dangle. That thing was security and stability and property. 
men have been deprived of it because, uh, well, we we are, we have headed toward a social welfare society, and where, all right, marrying a, a billionaire is still very interesting, but marrying a sixty k person or a one hundred k person will not lead to much improvement in your life because anyway, the state will care for you if you don't marry anyone. Uh, and that is that is a big problem. The Of course, it's a radical uh, solution, but the artificial womb gives that dangling power to say, all right, you don't want to reproduce, you go away uh, and you will not leave your genes in the future gener- generation. And we're going to keep reproducing with artificial wombs until some woman pops out that is that desires the family lifestyle and then we're going to give up the artificial womb <laughs> there's 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 quite a few of those but yeah like yeah it's not the same amount of women as it was maybe in the you know 1950s or something like that yes and so yeah. with that dangling power we would have at least equal dangling power because currently <laughs> we're getting dangled a lot men We, a lot we of, being you're told, the danglies oh, you and at, we're the danglers. You have to look at me in the eyes. You don't take good care of me. You don't pay flowers. You don't do this. And we have nothing to dangle anymore. Yeah. I mean, getting flowers for your wife is nice. I would say, you know, if you can, if you can dangle some flowers occasionally, that's, that's quite nice. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case my husband listens to this. <laughs> I don't think he will. Um Yeah, I mean, you know, all, all fair. Um, like I said, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, the dangling will not commence anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> you were mentioning your husband not watching the show. Uh, is uh, how, how do you relate your ideological dissidence to your family? Uh, the, is he aware of what you think? Is he, yeah, does he like your so. interviews? I think I mean I think he's watched a few. He's you know he's a conservative. Um, he's not as you know neck deep and you know the minutia of whatever differing factions and stuff. I mean this just this always interested me. Um, yeah, I mean we agree on on most things. I just yeah he's just not as you know he kind of vaguely knows the the direction that I'm in, but uh, and he knows that pretty much everyone on the show would be considered far right. And that's that's okay. that's like a, a good summary. But he doesn't think that that's like something reprehensible or that I'm insane or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's all good. I also don't think I would fare very well with someone that was like me or interested in exactly the same things. I would. I think we just you know devolve into like the the narcissism of small differences over whatever little factional bullshit that happens because that's essentially what happens on the on the right every day. Every day is beef between. This, you know, the the family guys and the pagans and the vitalism and should you have a six pack or is it okay to relax or it's it's all sorts of things like that. Constant battles. So thank you. No, no, thank you. I don't want that in my house. Oh yeah, people uh, lack an appreciation for difference in the couple. In the dating scene, you have uh, I want a man who likes snowboard like me. It's like, what does it change, really? And is it is it really a necessary thing for your family to do exactly the same and have exactly the same hobbies? I find this totally ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, people have insane standards for what uh, a good relationship should be uh, in general. Yeah. I think you know, dating's destroyed people. Um, you know, the idea just even for like even you don't you don't have to be like some some extreme outlier. You know, the guy who can date a thousand women to be tired of the whole process. 
and also jaded by it. And even if you're like, you know, relatively average guy who's dated a few women, you know, it's, you go through the motions and you also kind of get to a point where you kind of want some aspects of that person, but also mixed in with some aspects of that person. Nobody's perfect. So you just kind of wait, bide your time to, yeah, you know, maybe this, maybe that women the same. Uh, so yeah, it's, I, I don't think it's a, it's a good development. I think people should make their peace with, with, uh, you know, with, with the, the, the problems that the other person has. I think that, and you're always going to have to make your peace with that. It's not, Really, you know, it's the biggest cliche in the world, but nobody's perfect. And people just don't realize that really nobody's perfect. Neither are you. So it's, yeah, it's, it's important to, to yeah, internalize that and live and live it in your, in your day-to-day life makes, makes people much, much happier. Yeah. I think that current society focuses the decision-making of uh, people in a couple on, do I want to stay with him? And that's as opposed to being alone. And that's as opposed to choosing in the next guy. I think that you should focus when you think about these questions on, is there really a chance that the next guy will be better, much, much better? And most of the time, it's no. Most of the time, you're getting older and you're going to have more difficulty dating and it's, you're going to end up with worse. Yeah, yeah, but there's just kind of this this weird promise, I think, also from media, you know, it's a lot of romance movies and essentially porn for women that, you know, there's this type of person who's, you know, is dominant, but also sensitive. It also looks like a god and there's the, that kind of that promise somewhere that, you know, maybe if I cross paths with this guy and he, you know, sees me reading this book that he also loves because that's how this type of stuff happens. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it'll happen. Uh, so yeah, there's always that, that, that promise there. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately for most people, 99.9% of people, that's, that day is never going to happen. The, the, the meet cute at the coffee shop over catcher in the rye or whatever normie book yeah. you're reading is not going to happen. Yeah, it's uh, it's sad, but yeah, I mean, men have porn. I know, you know, they. I'm sure that that feeds all sorts of delusions as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I know we're we're slowly coming up on time here. I want to ask you the last question. It's a question that everyone gets on the show: is uh, if you have a, a recommended thinker, someone who's been influential, maybe for you, could be a writer, could be a biologist, could be anyone you think is maybe a little bit underrated, and people might uh, do well to, to check out? I don't think he's underrated, but to me, the most foundational reading was always The Selfish Gene of Richard Dawkins and The Extended Phenotype of Richard Dawkins. But there are books that are underrated on a front, which is the political front. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Richard Dawkins wrote these books being a liberal and trying to push liberalism the, the strongest he could in front of the facts. Uh, but I don't think he did it well. So, so what I would recommend is not so much to read it because it's underrated, but read, it with, read these books with a different mind. Reject all of the comments about liberalism, about Richard Dawkins saying, I don't want human society to be an evolutionary entity. I don't want people to be selfish. And read these books with the understanding that no matter what Richard Dawkins wants, this has to be the truth about humanity. It has to be the truth that society is filled with parasitic forces that try to exploit each other, that will try to drain energy from you, that will try to consume from you, and that 
evolution makes this a fatality, that there is no way you can be alive and not be subjected to all these forces that try to fight against your existence. So read it that way. And I think that even if you've read it previously, uh, you may have a different outlook and a different outlook also uh, on what what this means for society, what, what this means for your political thinking. Because I think we have to, to, to read the selfish gene and understand this is what happens to humanity right now and there's no way out and we have to accept it and live well, well with it and try to veer it toward a favorable direction that we can agree on, but not try to combat it the way Richard Dawkins did. Yes, it's it's interesting because I, I I have that uh, book on my bookshelf. It, it it's a um, kind of um, artifact from a different era when I was very much into new atheism. So I obviously bought the extended Richard Dawkins catalog, and I was you okay. know kind of tendentially interested in it because it was a bit, a bit too technical. I just wanted you know the takedown of religion. I was like, where, how many pages in does he start attacking religion? You know, it was pretty long winded for me at the time. So I might you know revisit it now that you mention it. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that is a really good point. I think there are quite a lot of people in science who do an excellent job before they add their layer of preferred ideology, which is invisible to them because they think it's common sense. You know, people like Steven Pinker. I mean, one of the best books I've ever read and one of, you know, so-called red pill books of mine was the, the blank slate. A lot of people have Absolutely. read that book. Excellent book. Um, essentially, you know, your gateway into HBD, if anyone's curious about this, there's quite a lot of it in there. Uh, you know, sex differences, you know, any anything you want. Um, yeah, it's, you know, but Steven Pinker obviously is a man who's very liberal and he's, you know, yeah, quite famously so, but also, yeah, a good recommendation. So the contrast between the sharpness of these people and how they think when it's art science and then the blind spots that they have with their boomer-inspired uh, ideologies, it, it's just stunning. It, it's the, I think there's a saying in English about heroes systematically falling, or you, you live long enough to become the villain or something like this. <laughs> I think that they have lived long enough to show themselves a weaker version of themselves that you don't get when you, when you pay attention just to their science. It's so swift so sharp and then eventually you get their political commentary and it's they haven't even integrated their own theories and their own intelligence and applied it to their political thinking in fact yeah. that's that's what i'm trying to do different you know a lot of my my public career is basically my frustration with richard dawkins at being so right on evolution and so wrong on everything else that I wanted to fix a little bit uh, what, what he had done. And my book also fixes part of his theory at the biology level, uh, particularly with respect to memes. I think that they're a deceptive concept and I hash it out in the book in chapter nine. But yeah, we need, uh, we need people who are not only capable of understanding the full theory of evolution, but tell people what it means, what it means for what we can't escape as a society. Excellent. So the, the the third recommendation here is uh, Jean-François' book, The uh, the Revolutionary Phenotype, uh, Out Everywhere. Uh, it's also an audible, which is always a good thing if you're you know doing yes. stuff around the house. Um, is there anything else that people should uh, should check out? Uh, you can check out uh, my Twitter account at J-F-G-A-R-I-E-P-Y. 
I've been recently unbanned on Twitter after a year of banning. I feel like I'm a prisoner out of a dungeon, <laughs> uh, reawakening to what society has become while I was gone. Uh, I enjoy it, and I, I, I highly appreciate this move by Elon. Uh, it gives me hope that the public space will be restored with free speech. Yeah, I hope so too. And also check out uh, JFD Tonight, which you can see in the background there as well. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, thank you so much, Jean-François. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to support my work and access more content, please consider subscribing through Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. See you next week.